Well, Jared Impachachaha Tate, welcome to All Classical Portland. Thank you. It's a real honor to be here. Your recording, Fire and Light, is quite an impressive large-scale work, and I want to get into a little bit more of the granular detail about that. But uh, first, I'm, I'm hoping that you can tell our Portland listeners about your musical background growing up in Oklahoma, family influences, and the heritage that you can trace that inspired you to bring together what we might call Western classical music and that of indigenous cultures of North America. Absolutely. Um, well, first, I'll go ahead and introduce myself in my language. Chukma, Chin Chukma Tahatak, Sohulchifot, Jared Impachachahatate, Chikashasaya, Taloa Ikpisaya, Hashlaka Sayopa, Chukmashki, Yakoke. Hi, everyone. My name is Jared Impachachahatate. I'm a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation here in Oklahoma, and I am a professional classical composer. And a little bit about my background. Uh, my father, Charles, is Chickasaw from Oklahoma. He graduated law school from the University of Oklahoma and became a tribal judge, a special district judge, counsel to our tribal legislator. But also, more importantly, dad is author to our current Chickasaw Constitution. Um, all American Indians live under uh, a constitution of their own tribe, and so we literally have dual citizenship in the United States. Um, and, and our constitutions are very congruent to the U.S. Constitution. And so, uh, but also dad is a phenomenally trained classical pianist and baritone. And so I grew up with my father playing uh, classical repertoire and singing opera uh, when I was a kid. And so that's how I started the piano. And so when I started, when I was eight years old, at about three months in, I had announced to my parents that I was to be a concert pianist. I was very serious about it. But my mother, Patricia, uh, was Manx Irish um, from Nebraska, and mom was a professional choreographer and dancer. And so between my two parents, I grew up in an enormous amount of theater, musical theater, opera, uh, lots of different styles of dance, a lot of modern dance, uh, ballet, tap, jazz, the whole nine yards that's taught in curriculum. And then mom was also, she studied dance around the world and, and was an expert flamenco dancer and belly dancer as well. And so anyway, I grew up with this incredible repertoire of sound, of symphonic music from great ballets and operas and great classic musical theater when I was a kid. In fact, I ended up touring Broadway, I ended up touring with Les Mis and Miss Saigon as a pianist. And so that, that definitely was given a strong leg to stand on in growing up in musical theater. So I was for sure a theater brat. I grew up in theater and that heavily informed how I compose now. And so what happened was when I, I went to school um, as, a, as a piano major at Northwestern in Chicago. And when I graduated, mom wanted to do a, a, one of her new ballets because she was always choreographing. And she wanted to do a ballet based on American Indian stories. And she just turned to me and said, well, you're my Chickasaw kid. You can compose my score. So my first uh, gig was writing a ballet score for my mother. And, you know, it was one of the most, it was really, really beautiful. It was very innocent and beautiful. Mom literally was asking me to be my entire self. And that was such a gift and it completely changed my life. And so I was a piano major at the Cleveland Institute of Music at that point for my master's degree. And I just went back after we premiered the ballet and added composition to my degree. And that's when I turned to my family and I said, I am to be a Chickasaw classical composer. And, you know, the reaction from both my classical and native communities was incredibly strong and positive and encouraging. And everybody was just like, Jared, you've got something 
here, it's really cool. You need to do this. And so I was heavily pushed and encouraged by both of my communities. And I'm so grateful for that because people really believed in me and they really believed in what I had to contribute as a symphonic American Indian composer. Jared, first of all, thank you very much for sharing with us your introduction in Chickasaw. And also, your description of of life growing up is really of, uh, I mean, just immersion in so, in (laughs) in this broad range. Uh, Not just Mm -hmm. listening to recordings of Bela Bartok um, and maybe something else, but just a a whole melange, a whole broad range of, of different not just listening, but uh, uh, but as you described, performing and composing too. Mm-hmm. Was was there a point? Was there any kind of a point where there was a, maybe a feeling of a, of a pull toward your Chickasaw roots, or or something that made you say to yourself that you needed to bring these two worlds together? Not until the ballet, and that's that's what's so. I guess it was, I, I'm kind of glad it worked out the way it did because I was just being who I was as being Chickasaw and a classical musician. And I didn't see that they had anything to do with each other, you know, in terms of a life vision. They were just what they were. And so, but the thing that's really cool is that, you know, I was playing piano repertoire that was literally training me to do this. I mean, I was playing Debussy and Prokofiev. And I mean, I was, you know, I was, I grew up in the ballets of Stravinsky and Prokofiev and Tchaikovsky. All of these pieces were just saturated with ethnicity and national identity. And of course, you know, when I was in high school, I grabbed all the Bartok uh, string quartets. And I listened to all six of them just religiously. I couldn't get enough of them. And I was, I was literally learning how to incorporate folk music my own folk music into classical music. I mean, because that's what Bartok did. He took the music of his own people and created his own sound in symphonic music. And so I was not aware I was being trained as such, and I was. And so when it came time to do this, it was just all really in line. It was ready to go. And I took it very seriously. So you can imagine, it's like, you know, a lot of folks were like, oh, hey, that's really easy. Well, when I do have the likes of Tchaikovsky staring me over my shoulder, well, that that was pretty intense. And so I took it very seriously because I didn't want it to be token. I didn't want it to be kitschy or, you know, just a curiosity. Um, I wanted to compose as well as these composers that I was playing on the piano. And that's, that's a lot of, it's, I think that was a very positive 
good pressure. And I still have that today. I think of all these, I mean, I'm writing an opera right now, and of course I'm thinking of Puccini and Turandot, and I'm like, okay, it's gotta be that good. You know, I, I, that's, it has to be my goal. But there are also, there's a huge history of American Indians in other genres of fine art, such as poetry and painting and sculpture, and now filmmaking and there's choreography. I mean, there's a huge lineage uh, that came before me of American Indian artists and all kinds of other genres. Of course, there was Lewis Ballard in, in classical music, and he was also a symphonic composer um, who was just fantastic. So there, there is a lot of really good examples and a high bar, both in Indian country and in the classical world. So I just, I, I hold on to that, and I keep, I, hopefully I keep myself under that lens all the time. Fire and Light, or, and again, I'm going to attempt a pronunciation, Loak Chopala. <laughs> this work in comprises many different elements. There's orchestra, mm -hmm. there's chorus, mm -hmm. there's narration, there's vocal soloists. Um, you're bringing a lot of elements into this piece, although on a movement-by-movement -movement basis, they're not all coming at us all at once. How would you describe the experience of listening to the recording compared to what a live experience of this might be for audiences? Well, I'm, I'm hoping it's similar. Um, and, I mean, I, I was aware of that when I was composing, you know, because I was composing music for theater. And it's the same thing, you know, I, I had role models that wrote for ballet in which the ballet music, it stands on its own. And, you know, and I also knew that this would be parsed out. I mean, this is performed in movements um, by different orchestras. They'll take one movement and feature it. And I was aware that that could happen as well. So I was thinking of things on, on many levels at the same time. And to be quite honest with you, well, I guess the biggest current inspiration for that was Riverdance. Riverdance was a modern iteration of modern expression of Irish history and culture in separate scenes that are all standalone scenes. And it was just absolutely brilliant. I mean, you, they had the work of Bill Whelan and the group Anuna in there, and they were modernizing Irish music in a way that was just absolutely wonderful. And of course, it, it created a huge Irish explosion of culture. And, and it was also aligned with the cultural explosions happening with many folks all over the world, including, you know, North American Indian tribes. And so, uh, so that, you know, in the in 90s, that, that piece had a tremendous impact on me. So when the American Composers Forum commissioned me for a new work to pair, that I was to work with my tribe, I asked to do this specifically. And I, I called the tribal governor, Bill Anatubby, and said, I'd like to do this project. He gave an okay. And I made, I, I just decided I was going to do something similar. I wanted to do a Chickasaw version of Riverdance, but this time with a full symphonic orchestra. And there were a few more elements that they than they used in Riverdance. So I packed it even a little tighter <laughs> on this on this performance but it's it's meant to be seen in different scenes it's almost like tableaus of different parts of of uh, chickasaw history and culture wing feather light 
We make our houses of red grasses, our rushes at the river, our twig and horsehair and soft moss. We live in clay, in the dark hole trees, with our minds of hummingbird, woodpecker, owl. You do not see us sleeping in the deep quiet of our nesting places, only that most of us wake before the first light to announce the world is still here. In recent years, classical music culture has had, I would say, an awakening, an awareness, an increasing awareness of composers of different ethnic groups who have been neglected. I've been doing a lot of interviews recently with African-American black composers and black musicians, and we've brought more of their music. You, you're probably hearing um, William Grant Still and Florence Price mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. uh, composers like that more often. Yes. Native American or indigenous culture, that's an area that I think we need to explore more deeply. And I think that's next for us. And I, I'm hoping for me and with all classical and us here in Portland, the Pacific Northwest, that we're going to start to reach across and make some of those connections more now. I, that's more of a comment mm -hmm. than a question. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I, I want to give you a good positive reinforcement. Um, I believe that what's happening is natural and beautiful. We, we, we are evolving, but that's what fine art does and has done for a couple of thousands of years. As fine art spanned, you know, was, you know, it was an anomaly in the sense that the fine art that we know of today kind of came from Europe, but it actually was very influenced by Northern Africa and the Middle East as well. I mean, its roots are, are, are quite broad, actually. But as we see it codified in like a symphonic expression that we have now, well, when it started to uh, tra traverse the globe, it asks everybody to bring in their own identity and their own bend in what's going on. And, and it wants that and, and at a certain level of discipline, very much like martial arts. It's like martial arts, everybody can participate. There's a discipline that they embrace and they go and it bring it, you actually end up bringing your own spirit into the development of that. And it's the same thing with fine art in general. I think that's wonderful. And I think what we're seeing is quite honestly, a very natural and beautiful development of that. Um, there are other folks all over the globe, even in Europe, that were, you know, quote unquote, undiscovered for a while or maybe didn't, you know, make it into the history books or whatever that people will unearth. And so this happens on many, many levels from different parts of the world. And I think we're doing that in a very natural way. And I think in a very beautiful way, all of this music deserves its time with people. And it, it takes time to address all of it because there's a lot, there's a lot of output. And so I think given that time and that, that beautiful, authentic intention that people have to bring it out, I think it's great. So I'm really enjoying all of this and I have a very positive outlook on it. I'm speaking with Jared Tate, composer of Loak Chopala, Fire and Light, here on All Classical Portland. And Jared, let's get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty of 
the people who were involved in the performance of Fire and Light because you mm-hmm. you were able to acquire uh, some wonderful people. And uh, we, we can't go any further, I think, without talking about your librettist, Linda Hogan. Would you, would you uh, of course. share a little bit of, about Linda? Absolutely. Well, Linda is a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and she is our Chickasaw Arthur. I mean, she's like, she's it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, she's not the only one. We have several authors, but, you know, she she's really the grandparent of author, authorship in the tribe. And um, she actually had a poem. She had just composed her poem entitled Fire and Light when I was asked to do this project. And um, I wanted to pair with Linda anyway, and she gave me this poem, and it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. The entire work is based on Linda's poem entitled Fire and Light. And so in addition to that poem, uh, there were scenes like Shellshaker and Clans and Removal uh, that she uh, created new poetry for, which we're very blessed that she did that. So when you hear Richard Ray Whitman narrating, that's the poetry from her original poem entitled Fire and Light as well. And then when you hear Lynn and Wes, and then during the Clans when Richard is narrating that, that's original poetry that she composed for this work. So yes, Linda is a is a major backbone of this production um, artistically. She and her it's I mean, she's her words are so easy to compose to, and it's just I, I'll tell you I just loved it. It was a real real special event for me to compose music to her words. The very opening movement, which itself is called Fire and Light, you you have actor Wes Studi, who everybody knows uh, from major motion mm-hmm. pictures like. Dances with Wolves and uh, Last of the Mohicans <laughs> and many others, and yeah. um, my goodness, what a what a presence! Um, he he just commands that that movement with his voice, and with Linda's words, it's wonderful, and it's a feeling mm-hmm. of like we're being told about the beginning of the world, aren't we? I mean, that that's how it comes across to me. Exactly, yeah. Linda's poetry, I believe, it's it's like a creation poem at the beginning, and. And at the end, it kind of sums up, you know, the existence of our tribe. She really comes full circle in that entire poem. Uh, it's absolutely sensational. Um, yeah, and, and I appreciate you mentioning, you know, the actors. You know, Wes Studi is a Cherokee actor. Um, and, of course, you know, he brings a, a, a real explosive voice. You know, he was also an avatar. <laughs> He's just been every new, And he just received an honorary Grammy. This, I mean, I'm sorry, an Oscar award this year, which I think he deserves very much. But he is a terrific guy. And Richard Ray Whitman is Yuchi and Creek from Oklahoma. And he's also a very well-known actor in Indian country. And then Lynn Maroney, who narrated Shellshaker, is Chickasaw herself, and she, her career was in storytelling as well. So all three of these folks are just—they're just treasures. I mean, I—I I feel like Forrest Gump. That I like. How did I get here? Like, how did this happen? And I, I call myself Jared Gump a lot because I just—you know—I just feel so eclipsed by the talent that I'm surrounded by, and I'm, just, I'm really, really grateful that these folks uh, agreed to do this. <laughs> the creator and the grandmother of all life know how to give good gifts. They are the ones our ancestors trusted on the journey towards home, carrying sacred flame. In earth wisdom and faith, they carried sacred fire from place to place as they followed the pole, planted at night, that leaned, pointing the direction 
of our migration. Always the people carrying fire, ready to travel in morning light, the sun in its place. There's other elements yeah. too. You have a children's chorus that we hear singing. Mm -hmm. And yes. uh, tell me tell me about the second movement, double header, which is kind of mm -hmm. like, wait a minute, double header, but mm -hmm. it includes chanting. And I, I wanna hear about the men who are, are, are chanting this, this repeated uh, chant uh, throughout that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, double, double header is the name of one of our social dances, and it's called double header because it involves two families with two lead singers. And so it's like a tet, a tet, you know, it's like a bouncing off of each other and they go back and forth um, because the, the song repeats itself over and over. And the first time one family leads it, the second time the other family leads it. And then when it gets into the groove, they go into like a circle for a while and then they stop and they repeat. So the double header is just a really great wonderful celebratory social song that families will dance together. And that's that's exactly what I wanted to do was have a celebratory sound to that. And, you know, the way you hear it on the recording is exactly how it is sung traditionally. And that was a real joy to be able to, you know, uh, to identify one of our songs that I could leave intact and orchestrate to it. And, you know, what's really what it really basically became was kind of like a set of variations, orchestral variations on the song. It starts up more simple with a percussion and then you add cymbals and then you add woodwinds and strings and, and eventually to this big glorious kind of like like sunburst at the very, very end. And when they finally let out their their final yell together um, as the two families, and I that was just a it's just I'll tell you the stars aligned on that one, and that, that was a dream come true to, to be able to present our traditional music in its pure form along with straight up orchestral music and marry them together in a very clear way. So that was that was a real. I guess uh, I guess a boon for me. That was just something that just was very, very personally fulfilling to do. And you know, it was neat because then, in rehearsal, well, I brought in the dance troupe and the orchestra, and neither one of them had ever worked with uh, the other type of ensemble before. So it was a growth for everybody, and it was a lot of fun, and everybody just really enjoyed it. So in the live performance, you have the two, the dance troupe dancing that live in front of the orchestra, just like you hear it on the CD. Jared, is Fire and Light your most ambitious project yet? I'm new to your music. Is it is it the biggest, largest scale thing that you've done yet? So far, yes. I, I will say that right right now um, I am in the middle of composing my new opera. It's a two-act um, full-length opera. 
uh, that's premiering in Massachusetts. And this one is actually a derivative um, from uh, Fire and Light. I am taking the shell shaker story and making an entire opera out of it. I'm just finishing up the first act, in fact. Um, and so we're premiering it next March, March 19th. And so this is a two-act, 90-minute opera sung entirely in the Chickasaw language. And of course, this has a full chorus, children's chorus, full orchestra, and all the soloists. And it is based on that very, very important legend that we have uh, called uh, of the shell shaker. It's how we received the turtle shells that became the primary sound of our stomp dancing in our culture. Jared, your piece dates originally from 2009. This is its world premiere recording. Um, slowly, gradually, tentatively, we're <laughs> we're opening up across the country. Are are there any uh, live performances being talked about uh, that that may be possible in the next year or so of this work? There's there's uh, no live performances in terms of a theater piece, but uh, orchestras have been performing "Spider Brings Fire" and the clan scene. Uh, from this, and I, I kind of anticipated that when I wrote this, that those would those would be two pieces that would be extracted. The Winnipeg Symphony has played Clans, uh, that was Gerard Schwartz that had conducted that, and uh, we did Clans here with Oklahoma City Philharmonic. Spider Brings Fire has been played in multiple places, and in fact, we did uh, part of that with the San Francisco Symphony um, just before the pandemic shut everything down last year. That was very fortunate to do that. So, uh, but I do anticipate more performances um, of movements from this with orchestras. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Jared Tate, thank you very, very much for uh, spending some time with us here at All Classical Portland to talk about Loak Chopala, Fire and Light. I'm going to be very uh, excited about sharing your music with us, uh, with our listeners here at All Classical Portland in Oregon. Well, this is such a privilege. I, I really appreciate it. Chukmashki, uh, Yakoke.